Welcome to the UK Scriptwriters Podcast with me, Danny Stack. Uh, I'm without Tim Clay today. I've come to the home of British cinema, BAFTA HQ, to meet filmmaker and journalist Nev Pierce. Hello. Hello, Nev. Thanks for joining us. Um, I've been wanting to interview you for ages, and I know I've been emailing you over the years about certain other things. Mainly, will you review my own short film and all that kind of stuff? Because you started out pretty much as a journalist for Empire, didn't you? Empire magazine. Yeah, well, I've been, I'm a contributing editor there now. I used to be editor at large for Empire. Before that, I edited Total Film. Um, now, can I ask you, before you say anything more, what does editor at large really mean? Does well, that, is that a polite way of saying you've eaten too much mince pies? What's well, going on? I think that's how my father used to think of it. Um, <laughs> It really, I think, is a way, it's a, in some ways, in my experience, it's kind of a, a grand way of saying staff writer in terms of you can get sent everywhere. But also it means you might organise assignments and if you're dealing with US publicists, it sounds a lot better to be editor at large. Yeah. And it would mean that you would sometimes, like there was a couple of special editions of the magazine, like supplement to the, in addition to the normal 12 issues, which the editor-in-chief would deal with. Uh, a few years ago, I did a couple of side issues, one about the history of Empire. And then when Empire had its 20th birthday portfolio, I went to the States and did a big photo shoot with lots of different people, sort of organised that with um, Debbie Berry, who was photographic director at the magazine. She's brilliant. I mean, I think I did my best to take as much credit as I possibly could at the time, but she's sensational. And did yeah, an awful yeah. Lot. <laughs> um, so yeah, posh staff writer, staff writer with an ego, okay. I don't know. Well, in many ways, to me, you've had like a dream job, like writing for Total Film and then Empire, possibly the best film magazines around. Um, and now you've kind of jumped ship. You're kind of more into filmmaking. You're kind of the new hot filmmaker on the scene. Well, I'll take that. Yeah. I'd be very happy with that. Well, I, I can say that confidently because I've seen your short films, uh, which we're going to talk about today. But you're also developing feature films of your own. So you're kind of, you're really going for it now as like in the filmmaking world, isn't that right? Yeah, I think, I think. It's. Um, I think of myself as being a filmmaker now. That was a change in the last couple of years. Well, okay, that's what I do. That's yeah. my job. And I also do some journalism. Um, that said, I mean, I'm still very green. Still very new to it. It's a different. I think it's probably I'm in a place as a filmmaker where you might expect to be if you're in your early twenties and you're really going into it, and yeah. I'm forty, so it's just an, it's a slightly different feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you have the benefit of lots of experience, but it's also it's slightly scary sometimes because you feel like you've got pretty far up a ladder on in, in one field of work, and then you're trying to transfer into another field of work. Um, and I think there's big benefits to that, the experience and also knowing a lot of people in film and there's also some downsides to that. Yes. Well, this is fascinating to me because, you know, to be a really good film journalist, you've got to write with a lot of insight and, in and passion about the subject matter. And now you're learning the kind of other side of the craft, really, of actually putting a film together. So that's interesting to me in terms of your own personal journey, as it were, from like talking about film and kind of celebrating film to going to the nuts and bolts of making films and the craft of things, um, from, you know, screenwriting in particular, uh, which is obviously what we like to talk about here on the podcast. But I'm just wondering how that's been for you in terms of your own personal revelations or insights about what's happened, you know. All that high-level access that you've had with the interviews you've done with top-level directors all around the world and being on set on very, you know, great Hollywood films. And now you're making your own shorts. Do you find there's been a big crossover of what you've learned or is it a whole new learning curve? Of I think you learn a lot of great things and one of the things that inspired, made me want to get into filmmaking was spending time with people who were great filmmakers. And then also spending time with people who weren't great filmmakers. Weirdly, yeah. you know, not to be too negative, but if you're on set with David Fincher, you're like, okay, I'm never going to be as good as this guy. This yeah. is not going to happen. And then you're on set in other instances, I think, I could probably be as good as this guy. We'll see. Um, and I mean, it gives you a slightly skewed view, maybe, of how it works if you spend a lot of time on Hollywood movies, because um, you go, oh, this is how it's done. It's like, well, yeah, that's how it's done if you've got like a 90-day shooting schedule and tens of millions of pounds exactly but when you've got four grand and you're trying to make a short film in two days yeah. you know that's a different thing um, no there's no substitute for actually doing it actually making the films as, as you'll know can you remember the moment when you decided I'm going to do it I'm going to make I'm going to at least take the plunge and make one short or was it a, a more definite decision of like I'm going to be a filmmaker now 
come hell or high water kind of thing. I remember the moment when I decided I want to get involved in film. I was 15 and I watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest because we had a supply teacher who didn't have a lesson so just stuck it on. Right. And I thought I've got to be involved in film in some way. But the idea of being a filmmaker, I don't know that that ever really occurred to me. Becoming a film journalist seemed like an exotic enough idea. And then I think I wrote a screenplay whilst I was working a total film, I think it was with BBC, I can't remember that. I wrote my own screenplay uh, and then ended up writing another one with Jamie Russell, who's another journalist, or Russell journalist, is now a full-time yes. screenwriter. You've co-written a few things with him, haven't you? Yeah, we've written a few things together. And then that went in a drawer for years, like five years, and then I took it out and rewrote it. Uh, and those five years ago, I was like, I just knew journalism was too full on, it was too much to do, and I thought, well, I can't write, I don't have the time to write here, so I'm going to learn, I'm going to listen to a lot of podcasts, read a lot of books in my time when I'm not doing journalism. Yeah. And also, I was fortunate in the fact that I could spend time on set with people, and I kind of, if you're spending a few days on set with a great filmmaker, in some ways, it's your own personal film school. Yeah. Um, you're just soaking it up on set right there. Yeah, I think yeah. it certainly helped with when it came to directing working with actors. Mm. Less so, uh, you know, technically I need to know I'm plugging gaps in my technical knowledge because I guess you probably don't spend that much, well, you, you don't spend that much time as a journalist sort of hanging around with the DP and yeah. asking advice on lenses. So that's stuff which I've had to learn about now. Um, uh, so it's a very long-winded answer to your question. Well, I eventually summoned up the courage to show a script to David Fincher. And when he wrote back saying, I'm not sure you're aware, but you can really write, I thought, okay, I'm going to take that. Yeah. Like, this dude called David Fincher yeah. <laughs> says that's, I can write. Like, regardless, because everyone's full of self-loathing, right? Well, maybe, maybe that's just me. <laughs> but you're like, I don't know if it's any good, and I know. And then that script went down really well with him. And that gave me the courage to be like, okay, well, I guess this is something I can do now. Yes. Now, there's been ups and there's significant ups and downs since then. Yeah. You know. Um, well, the only downside for the people listening to that kind of story is, yeah, they don't have access to David Fincher yeah. to read their script. I presume you kind of got access to him because of interviews you were doing with him or being on the set of, was it Zodiac, was it? Yeah, um, I'd, inter I'd interviewed him in a retrospective piece about Fight Club in 2005. I then asked to go on the set of Zodiac and expected to be told no, but was told yes. So went on there for a few days. And then was each production since then. But it wasn't until Girl with Dragon Tattoo that I even admitted that I wrote screenplays. Because I kind of figure that if you're a big Hollywood movie director, you get a lot of people going, oh, I've got an idea for a movie. Yeah. So I feel like you need to earn, earn, earn the right to have that conversation. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, why don't we rewind a little bit, because all of this, this my classic bugbear of interviews and podcasts, is that a lot of person's experience can be just summarised in a few quick sentences. Sounds really cool, everything kind of happening. But actually, when you break it down a bit further, you realise the practical step-by-step -step things that had to occur in order for this to happen, and how long that actually took. So I like to rewind, even in terms of... Like if you, uh, I believe you went to uni down in, in Bournemouth, down yeah. where we're based, um, and you did journalism down there, I think. Yeah. So what you, what kind of year was that? I graduated in 98. 98. So, you know, you're a fresh-faced graduate in journalism. What was your kind of thinking at that point? What I stood for election to a student council and became the communications officer for the student union. Yeah. And I ran the newspaper and the TV station. I say I ran the TV station. That was an extreme, it was a brilliant student called Steve Martin who had most of the ideas and inspiration. I essentially signed checks. Right. Um, but I learned a lot about publishing there because I did everything on the magazine. Yeah. Um, and off the back of that, did some work experience at Total Film, applied for a job at Total Film, which I didn't get. Mm -hmm. And we moved um, into the 21st century at this point? No, this was 99 right. when I did the work experience. I applied for a job, didn't get it, and then the work experience was the following week. And I think the fact that I didn't throw my toys out of the pram, but I just went in and made tea and was smiley enough, helped. Uh, Dan Jolin, who oh, yeah. was a reviews editor back then, gave me my first bit of commission work. Yeah. And that started a bit of freelancing for them. But like back then, I was, I was living in Slough and I'd go to the cinema. I don't know, sort of a few unlimited cards or something like that. Yeah. I'd go to the cinema and just see everything I could. 
so that when Dan would phone me up like two months later when they come to the video reviews, he'd say, well, what have you seen? And I can say, I've seen everything. So yeah, I can review anything you want. Uh, then I got a job working for a Christian Current Affairs magazine called Third Way, which okay. doesn't exist anymore as production editor there. Still contributing bits and bobs to Total Film. Then I worked for a film website called Popcorn. Oh yeah. I think for about a year, which I really loved. It's for Carlton Communications, and we're spending an awful lot of money on the internet, but didn't seem to have any means to actually make money from the internet. Yeah. So when we were all fired, it wasn't a massive surprise. And that's when I started doing freelance shifts at Total Film and Production. Um, so editing stuff on the page. Uh, I mean, this is all a lot of detail, but just so no. This know. is great. This is um, what I like to know anyway. And. Then I think I got the job of production editor there. And then after about nine months, someone who I had worked with at Popcom was working for the BBC. So they had hired me to go work for the BBC to be news editor on their, uh, or to write news for their film website. So I did read news and reviews there. Yeah. And then after I think two years of that, I then went back to Total Film as reviews editor, then became deputy editor, then became editor. Great. So we took, that's basically from 2009 no, from 1999 to 2007, yeah, roughly that kind of period. So not a not a smooth ride either, I would imagine, in terms of freelance work and kind of popcorn going under and ups and downs. Yeah, I don't think I don't think popcorn going under didn't particularly worry me at the time. Right, but um, I think probably I mean it did in terms of it was sad. I thought it was a good website, but. I don't know, maybe I was too young to be worried. Like, you know, you're like, oh, everything will be fine. It'll yeah. be okay. It didn't really occur to me to be that panicked about it. Um, I really, I mean, it's... They were killer hours. And certainly when I went to work at Total Film, I look back now with mixed feelings on that period of time because I worked with some really great people and yeah. did some work I'm really proud of. But I also did a lot of, I think, damage in my personal life in terms of just being too busy, just not being around not being present enough and I certainly ta taught me the thing I try to remember now is that you're you're making a life you're not making a career yeah so like enjoy your life be present for the people in your life work is another thing and companies don't have any loyalty to you so don't mistake don't mistake company for family yeah well that's a really good philosophy to have especially in the world of film where it's all consuming and all passionate you know, in terms of the competition as well, it's out there. Uh, but to have that balance is certainly a good thing, I think. But uh, so, total film was that London-based as well? Was that a yeah? They were, they were Bath at one point, but then they went to London. They were in London when I worked for them uh, on Baker Street, right? Uh, and then I was after a couple of years, I think two years of editing, I decided I wanted to leave because I just wasn't seeing my family at all. And Empire. The editor of Empire, who was a friend, said to me, oh, I never thought you'd leave. I never thought you'd give up editing, but if you're going to leave, why don't you become editor at large for us? We don't care where you live. Um, and I moved to Devon and like worked from there, yeah. travelled a lot. And that's when I did a lot of the Empire stuff. Okay, that's really good. That's really good to know. So how about in terms of screenwriting or filmmaking? Were you like thinking about those kind of things at this stage or was it all consuming with the interviews and traveling or were you tinkering with some scripts maybe here and there or well, once I moved to once I finished the whole film it's when I started writing okay. yeah, that's when I rewrote the western the horror western with Jamie which we showed Fincher and then I wrote a short film I was a judge on a competition and the director had pitched the winning entry but he didn't he wanted a writer for it and I'd said kind of glibly I was there as a journalist. I'd said kind of glibly in the judging room, oh, good write, good write this in an afternoon. And then a few weeks later, I thought, when I was supposed to be doing my real work, I thought, I wonder if that's true. So I wrote it based on the story beats that I had from the meeting from the judges panel and sent it in to the producer, but said to show it to Rob under a pseudonym so that he wouldn't feel like he had to use it. And that ended up being made with Rob McLaren directed it and uh, David Oyelowo was the oh, yeah. lead in it. It's a sci-fi film. I mean, I watched it again recently and I feel like Rob does an amazing job with the production design and the fear effects and the performances. 
writing wise I'm like yeah that's kind of a feature film trying to be a short film I'm not sure you know for some reason I'm thinking of this for the 48 hour film challenge was that, that no although we did do one of those I, I'm sure well. I've seen some sci-fi of yours a few years ago maybe it was what maybe it was the sci-fi one yeah no. uh, anyway yeah sorry that's all right. no, uh, so yeah we did that then we got and I got asked to write a feature version of that which I asked Jamie to work on with me and we did that. Was Jamie a fellow journalist, you say? Yeah, or? Jamie and I had known each other since since I worked for the BBC, I think. Right. Or maybe it was popcorn. I can't try to remember. Um, so we wrote that quite quickly. It didn't get made. We started the process of writing things that didn't get made. Right. Which a lot Features. of Features. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we wrote another feature for Hire. We wrote an action movie which got optioned and may yet still be made. Okay. Soon. Um... So you were getting to do some feature film development before you did your, you know, your recent shorts. So that's, yeah. that's good. The short, I mean, the weird thing about the shorts, and I think so much of this about filmmaking is that, that weird line between optimism and delusion. Mm. Like with the horror western, I sat with people who were quite senior and knew about the industry and suggested that I, I was like, I should direct this. And you say they're thinking, hang on, isn't this like a $25 million movie? What else have you done? I'm like, nothing. Yeah. But, and eventually I thought, oh yeah, well, no, I really actually have to make something. I'm kind of embarrassed because it's not that long ago, but I was thinking like that. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. Weird kind of delusions that, oh, it'll be fine. I can do this, not a problem. Um, so I don't know. It took quite a while to actually make the short films. Like, Bricks, the first one, was in my head for a long time. What year was Bricks made? It was two, three years ago? Uh, 2015. 2015, yeah. Okay, but so I think I probably first started thinking about it about two or three years before that. Okay. Like we but as a director as well, or were you just thinking I'm going to write As a director. As a director, yeah. Um, I rescheduled it a couple of times, we cancelled it a couple of times because of actors' availability or trying to get a decent um, location. Yeah. What was your approach, do you think, in terms of, okay, I'm going to make a short film, I've seen my fair share of short films as a, as a journalist, or I know how the kind of format works. Did you think to yourself, I've got to make it a certain quality or production or budget, or were you just thinking, I'll just do it however way I can, in terms of whatever I can muster? I Did you set a bar for yourself, as it were? Whether it's with shorts or whether it's with features, I've found whenever, whenever like I'm working on a low-budget feature now, at least in my head it's low-budget, and I think it will be low-budget actually in this case, but you can't, I find you can't necessarily decide too much on what it's going to be like the things that you want to work on will just present themselves to you and then you find that they've got your claws into you and you have to do them I mean I think probably with the short films I was determined that they would have stories which sounds silly maybe but I judged a lot of short film competitions and I didn't want to make anything that was uh, that could be mistaken for art I didn't want it to be necessarily a poem or a joke, which is, can be done very well in short films. I wanted it to be like, this is a proper story. Um, beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. And I wanted that with all the films. Because they're meant to be pilots, not for feature film versions of themselves, but to be able to go, look, this, is, this feels like a movie. You know, um, it doesn't feel like... Um, yeah, well, it doesn't feel like that. Yeah, no, and I don't mean that, that that might sound a bit disparaging, but like not at all. In fact, that's the one thing I would say. Even directing style, having seen the short films, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but when I was watching them as a uh, directing wise, I was thinking these are very story driven uh, short films, but they're story driven shots. It wasn't. Uh, trying to impress you with any kind of particular camera angle or whatever it was all to serve the story which I appreciated very much that's kind of something that we embrace uh, when we were making our own films as well uh, and so it made the story stronger and had that kind of assurance of direction and storytelling I guess so it felt clear uh, which in short films can be vague or can be complicated when it doesn't need to be at all so why don't we talk about Bricks as your debut then? Uh, I've seen it, but how would you? What was the? What's the pitch? Would you say? What's the kind of hot log? Hot log line. Bricks is about a posh bloke who gets a rough builder in to renovate his wine cellar and to uh, 
teach them a little bit of DIY and they fall out, essentially. Right. And it's based on a post short story. Oh, okay. Um, uh, and I, I think it's funny, but like I'm not sure about everyone thinks that. Well, it, it, it's a really good short. It's a, it's a dark short film, but it's definitely got a sly sense of humour to it. It's got two terrific central performances by those actors, uh, Jason Fleming and who's the other guy? Blake Gritson. He was great. He's terrific. Um, but one location short, but it didn't look low budget at all. You had a full crew and everything. Oh yeah, and it wasn't that cheap to be honest. Oh, there you, you go. Know, it was like I think it was I think it was about eleven grand. Okay. In the end. So as your debut short and get an 11 grand, that's pretty good. Location was quite, there was House of Detention in Clerkenwell, which is used quite a lot, I think, for different places, um, for different films. Wasn't cheap. Um, Really great space. So I think what I liked about that, or the benefit of that to that film, is that, yes, it was very contained. But because it was contained, because the story was within that one location, you could then go... Right, well, we are going to have proper kit, and we are going to have... It was really nice yeah. And Sam Renton, who's um, an op- he's been operating on a lot of Marvel movies, was a DP, and I think Sam also called in a lot of favours, so got us some really great kit. Um, uh, yeah, I can't remember what my question was. Well, no, just in terms <laughs> of um, you're making your debut and, and moving into the director's chair, making that decision as you did almost a couple of years beforehand to make bricks. What did you find the biggest challenge was when you actually made it? Or let's or talk about the script process first, maybe, to begin with. Because that one you co-wrote, did you? With- yeah, we, co- we co-wrote it, we talked about it. I think, I think it stemmed from an idea of having a very contained thing and then a kind of fairly grim notion. And then Jamie said it reminded him of a post story. We read the post story and then it's back and forth from that. And we used to just talk a lot on the phone because we didn't live in the same place and then do different passes on it. I mean, it's a long time ago. It feels like a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of... What was the page count, do you remember? I think it was like 12 pages, uh-huh. something like that. You know, I think we ended up cutting about a minute and a half out of the film after we shot it, where you're going, oh, well, that, if I'd known that, it could have saved me a few hundred quid. You know, you're like, oh, yeah. Jim, Jim Page, the editor, he's edited all the stuff. He's a great editor. And he, he went, let me just show you something. And sent it to me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, completely right. Yeah, don't need that sequence at okay. all. Huh. But it's weird, you know, the stuff that you figure out, which you think you're going to edit it all on the page, but then you, when you actually see it, you go, oh yeah, yeah. It's, don't, it's not necessary. Let's get through it as quickly as we can. Um, in terms of the actual production, let's say it got put off a few times, and I, Jason was in it because I'd met him on the set of Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and we got really well, and he'd said, oh, if you ever want me to do something, they give me a shout. And I think we talked about it for a couple of years on and off doing things. Then just finally the, the stars aligned and we managed to get him. Um, I think Blake was a recommendation from a friend. Um, and he was terrific. Yeah, he was. And I was very fortunate, I think, on the first film to have two actors who were that uh, professional. Not that actors were unprofessional, but you know what I mean? Like, they're just so well-versed. Yes. With, with Blake, you could be very, like, one-word direction. Like, more or two words. More playful. You know very straightforward and simple and also Fleming is just such a delight to spend time with like he's a real cheerleader whenever he's on and I'd seen that one I'd seen on, on Benjamin Button but also I'd seen him on set of other films and he just was, lifts the atmosphere wherever he is that's great um, so he's somebody that you just I would cast him in everything if I could well you had the rare luxury of having Jason in your second short film which is Ghosted yeah as, in, as a bit part almost he wasn't even the lead player but we'll get to that in a second because just with Briggs uh, I'm wondering you know did you slip into directing comfortably or was there any particular challenge you found in terms of getting the story from the page to the screen or any kind of thing that you the key takeaway that you learned from it as your debut short weirdly I feel like I was the most comfortable directing that more comfortable directing that than I have been directing anything except for perhaps Promise which is the last short which will come out later on next year or later on in 2018 rather um, probably because it was so fixed in my head and me and Sam the DP had gone over it so often in terms of a shot list and our own rough storyboards yeah. like scribbled things that whilst there were moments on set where you're like oh what are we going to do oh hang on we're going to have to cut this we don't have time I don't remember feeling terribly panicked. I mean, other people might say, well, that's who you look panicked. I didn't feel that. Um, and 
Whereas on the other shorts, because of circumstances, because they all happen quite quickly, there wasn't as much time to prepare. So that meant there probably was a little bit more thinking on my feet. I remember that making Brits and just feeling, looking back on it really fondly, and also feeling, because I knew I'd spent so much time chasing after this dream of directing, I was aware beforehand, it's like, if you start doing it and you don't like it, you just bin this off. Like, do the short, but then don't be so arrogant as to think, like, don't keep on pursuing it if you're just not any good at it or you don't like it. But I just felt really at home. It's still the time when I feel the happiest probably. Yeah. That's important to have that realization rather than the opposite, I guess. But uh, moving on from Bricks then to Ghosted, which is your second, was your second short. Yeah. yeah. So Bricks was kind of like a dark drama with a slight sense of humor, mm-hmm. but Ghosted is more a light kind of supernatural rom-com in a way. Yeah. So a different kind of tone, different kind of genre. Was that something on purpose, or was that just something of, oh, here's a new interesting short film, let's just do this? That was an accident. We were working on Lock-In which ends up being the third short. We had that in development with Creative England's iShorts scheme. Oh, yeah. And uh, it gone through various different drafts. Jamie wrote that, I didn't write it. Like, we were going to write it together and he did a draft, and I thought, it doesn't need me to do this. That was originally much more complicated, I and mean, when it got simplified somewhat, there's many more characters in it. But I think it was a scheduling thing. I'm trying to remember, there was a scheduling issue trying to get Nicholas Pinnock, I think, for it. Um, and also some finance stuff so it was just it was taking ages and Jamie had written this other thing ghosted and showed it to me and I knew Alice Lowe I'd got to know her um, and I sent it to her and she said that she'd be interested in doing it but she could only do it in like a, a few weeks time right so I phoned Savannah who produced Bricks I said oh, let's can we make a film in like a couple of weeks and credit to her she's like yeah okay let's go um so that came together really, really quickly, but it wasn't, you know, Lockham was going to be the second one, and Lockham was being done because we were developing a thriller with, a feature-length thriller with Great Moon. Oh, okay. Um, so the fact that Ghost is very different is just one of those things. I mean, it's quite nice, though, because, again, I learned a lot from doing that that informed the next film and the one after that. Yeah. Because it was so last minute. Um, and it was nice, because everybody knew the terms on which they were engaged. Like, it was the cheapest of all the films. Yeah. Everyone knew, like, we're doing this for, like, 20p in a packet of crisps. Um, and it was just a lot of fun, you know. You know, I, I feel like I could have been better prepared, you know, because of the lack of time. But um, well, give us the pitch for Ghosted. Well, Ghost is about a widow who starts dating again, and then all of her dates are ruined by the uh, ghost of her cheating dead husband. And so, now you said earlier you wanted to make stories and, and not art, but you've got Ghosted in Black and White, which is kind of arty. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a straight rom com, so I'm wondering why, what the uh, intention was with the Black and White, or was it kind of like a Lindsay Anderson if kind of thing of their stuff? You just ran out of stock. <laughs> it was Black and White. It was a couple of things. One, it was because I always thought the film kind of reminded me of Annie Hall and Manhattan. I mean, Annie Hall's not in Black and White, but in my head it is. Yeah. You know, I always think of that movie as if it's Black and White. Um, and also, uh, I knew we didn't have enough money. We couldn't. I couldn't give wardrobe a lot of money to coordinate colours or whatever. And I thought it's going to look really, really cheap. It's going to look really cheap. Thinking, though, Whereas to make it black and white, it won't look cheap. It just yeah. black and white just looks a bit, makes everything look a little bit classier. I wish I could carry around a black and white filter for myself. Um, uh, and also, I thought, you know what? When are you going to get a chance to shoot in black and white? Probably never. Yeah. You're probably never going to get to do a feature in it, so see what it's like. Yeah, no, it looked nice because it was a nice setting as well for the cafe or stroke restaurant. Yeah, place. a troubadour in uh, Ells Court. Pretty nice. And they, uh, they did good food as well. Oh, great. <laughs> so that was a bit of kind of from left field, let's just do the short kind of thing. Yeah, and it was nice. It was just fun. It yeah. just felt uh, uh, when there were panic moments where you're like, hang on, we don't, we don't have the time to get the story like so you have to, we had to cut a scene but that worked out alright you know stitching together but it's pretty you know whilst it is all one location it's all a series of dates it's still a lot of actors a lot of different people and that was just filling things in from people I knew like Richard Glover did it who was a friend of Alice oh, he's obviously Jason Fleming did it because I knew him Ray Panthaki I can't remember how I got to know Ray I think I've probably given a good review to one of his films um well, it's great David, to have this network of people that you've met through your film journalism. Well, David Elliott, who's in it, is terrific from Kajaki, or I think, I think that's called Kilo 2 Bravo in the States. 
I was just trying to think of who I could cast in that role, and I thought, I'm going to see what actors follow me on Twitter. And I saw David on there, I remembered him with a jacket, I thought he was brilliant, so I just messaged him and asked him there if he was. Go. I was like, are you free this Sunday? Right. You know, um, but budget-wise for these shorts, were you putting in your own money, or was it coming from different kinds of sources, or...? All over the place, really. Like, different, you know... Um, Lock-in was partly crowdfunded. We got about five grand from crowdfunding. That was part uh, of the Creative Ice Shorts kind of yeah. brief, though, wasn't it? Yeah, you had to you had to crowdfund some of it. Uh, some of it's just people I know who are interested in filmmaking. Stefan Alice Taylor, who's a sort of entrepreneur, oh, yeah. philanthropist, who's a friend of a friend. Um, he's put money into all of the films. He's been a massive support. That's great. And he's just launched a short film scheme fund. Sort yeah. Of thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. He seems to really believe in the potential of short film and in charge of giving people the opportunity to get started um, and it's massively it's massively important because there is the notion oh you can make a film on your phone and you can and I would I actually think probably if I could go back way before Bricks I would have shot stuff myself yeah. just experimented and gone like oh let's just see what this, how this works rather than having your experiment be something that costs thousands of pounds um, but at the same time, if you're going to do a short film and you're actually going to have a full crew and you actually want to pay people, it's hard to get money for that. No one wants to make pay for short films because it's, I mean, you know, you don't make any money out of short films. No. You know. Yeah. So effectively, you're saying to someone, hey, believe in this project, you've got a better chance of making money by buying a lottery ticket. Yeah. You know, basically, give me some money to burn. Um, so... Uh, and a couple of people put money in because they were involved in feature projects of mine and believed in them. So that was, you know, a big encouragement. Okay, great. So lock in then, which was supposed to be your second, but turned into the third. Yeah. And that was the Creative England's eye shorts yeah. uh, scheme. And that one, we had Tim McInerney in it. Uh, it was great. Give us the pitch for that one. That's about a landlord, which is Tim, who's trapped in a pub with his pregnant daughter by a stranger who then may or may not have something to do with his past. Uh, and we were very fortunate. We got Lucy Boynton just off the back of Sing Street. Um, and Nicholas, who I, Nicholas Pinnock, who's terrific, um, who I actually knew socially. Again, we'd like met, I can't remember, we'd met at some industry thing, and I just really um, admired his commitment. Like, he's a really solid guy and very clear-eyed about what he wants to achieve. And he's also, turns out, a tremendous actor, which is a bonus. Yeah. <laughs> Works for me. But was that a uh, tougher development process with Creative England in terms of putting the story or script under more scrutiny than you would normally go under? Or was it something a bit more sympathetical than that? I think that probably was the one that went through the most different versions. You know, as to what reasons, I can't really remember. Like... Um, I think originally it was a much bigger kind of almost like a whodunit with multiple characters and then sort of the reality dawns. Poor Jamie had to do so many different versions of it and it wasn't his fault. It was yeah. like probably just kind of reality dawning through the process of like, yeah, probably can't do this in like three days with 15 different people in a, you know, it was a process of simplification. Um, but I like working with Greta. I, I really like working with Peter Parker. I don't think he's not there anymore, but um, yeah. And it was a different, kind of different process. Um, and we did, you know, in terms of practically on the day, you know, night shoots, crane shot, car, just bits and pieces was just all new stuff, you know. And I feel like, well, it's hard to be objective on the films. So you really assess them on like, what did, did I learn while I was doing that? And in that sense, with different things I learned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But all of those three shorts then, have they been out to festivals and things like that? Or? Yeah, Bricks was at Fright Fest, and um, I think Bricks and Lockham were both at Aesthetica. Ghosted was at London Short Film Festival, um, and Loco, and was in Dinard, was in Dinard. Um, that was fun, to go there. I've been there as a journalist, so to go there as a filmmaker was kind of a thrill. Um, so it's been really nice, but um, I was really looking forward to getting out there and getting a wide well, let's talk about your latest short, or your most recent short, Promise, which again is slightly different in tone and genre, in terms of this is more of a social issue-led drama. Tell, tell us what it's about. Uh, Promise is about a sort of, uh, uh, an asylum seeker who's desperate to remain in the country, so agrees to be a surrogate mother for a couple who can't have a child. 
and both who could influence whether she can stay in the country. And it's Nabil El Boabi and Rebecca Callard and Lara Sarala in it. Um, and that came out of the pitch competition, which was uh, again like which is um, goes online. People pitch two-minute stories or two-minute pitches based on spider stories. And the winner of the people go to Pinewood, get whittled down. The winner gets thirty grand to make their shoe. And then there's a couple of runners up who get some money. And Hannah Lee was one of the runners up with Promise. And it was just a pitch, but I really liked it. And she went away and wrote the script, and I got sent the script. And she was looking to just write love and direct. And I thought, oh, this seems like something that. I don't know, again, I think it's earlier on, you don't mess. This sounds a bit pretentious, but you don't necessarily know why you're doing something. It's just the idea won't leave you, yeah. or the notion won't leave you. And after a while, you go, well, I guess this is the one I'm making now because it's got a switch into you and you can't step away from it. Um, and so we shot that in February uh, 2017. Two, yeah, 2017. So that was the fourth short. So the first one was shot January 2015, fourth one February 2017. So it's been a that's pretty good going, you know. Yeah, and all you know, all really good quality shorts. It's interesting what with Promise though. That so that's your first one that you haven't written yourself. Is that right? I know I, I co-wrote Bricks, but I didn't write Ghost of Rocking. Oh, you Jamie, didn't write Ghost of no, Rocking. That Jamie, was just Jamie. Jamie wrote both. Oh, okay. Of them. I mean, I was involved in the process of them from the beginning in terms yeah. of we talked about the idea, but then Jamie wrote them, and then. Yeah, I promise him, Sir Hannah. You know, obviously, she had the idea fully, fully fleshed out when she entered the, the pitch competition. Do you think you're more comfortable in that kind of role of kind of helping with the script in terms of development, or do you like to get your hands dirty a bit more, or even as an individual filmmaker now as you go into feature films? Do you see yourself as a writer director or more the director? I think probably if I had to choose, like I would be a director. Um, I mean, obviously, writing is my background, like certainly prose writing, obviously. And there's something like writing and talking were the two things I was good at at school. Yeah, you know, forget about anything else. <laughs> so I feel like as a writer, I'm probably best working with existing material. Like, I, ha I have written original screenplays, and I've written original screenplays by myself. However, like, I feel like I enjoy the process more if I'm working with somebody else, yeah. or if I'm adapting something, or I'm adapting a memoir at the moment. Okay. It's quite a challenge in terms of there's so much material, but I'm quite enjoying that process. Um, so I think maybe I'm better as an editor rather than an originator. But we'll see, you know. Um, I don't feel particular need to have to write everything that I'm going to direct. At the same time, you've got to have something in it which just really speaks to you. Yeah. And you don't necessarily, and again, you don't necessarily know why it does. You might only figure out after you've made the film, go, oh, that's why I did that. Okay. Um, on a practical level, on promise, I did do a pass on the script, uh, which then uh, was very minimal, you know, but it was more about getting it fixed in my head in terms of the flow of the story and the shots and how it worked. And I gave it back to Hannah. Who, to her credit, didn't freak out because I haven't actually told her I was going to do it. Um, she went, Oh, yeah, some good ideas here. And she went and did it. And I think yeah. got rid of a lot of the stuff I put in, but just put in stuff that was better. Okay. You know, you know um, and uh, so I kind of felt like that was a, that was my way of getting my, of getting it fixed in my head, but it's very much her script. Um, but it doesn't feel any less a part of what I want to do. Yeah. You know, it still feels very personal. Like, I don't know why you do stuff. You fall in love with the themes, you fall in love with the character, or you just, yeah. um, or you're exercising something which you didn't even know was a concern to you. And you're quite through and go, oh, okay, I'm doing it because of this. Yeah. Um, uh, and I wanted to make something with promise that I felt like could have some kind of um, social relevance, but hopefully still be dramatic and interesting rather than like, I don't want to just make a film which is just text. Like a lot of social realist stuff is just text, it's not subtext. Hopefully, it has enough of a drive as a story where you go, Oh, okay. It's like Good Time, which I saw recently, the Safety Brothers film, which oh, yeah. is terrific because it's a terrific thriller. It also has an under, you know, a subtext to it, um, but, it but that's not up front and center. And I, that's what I would aspire to do. Whether I ever manage it or not, we'll see. But it's to make stuff where you go, oh, that's a great thriller, but oh, actually, it's made me think about this thing. Yeah. Or, you know, this or that. Interesting. 
would you say there's anything particular about the screenwriting process that you find like either challenging or interesting or you know or do you have a particular kind of mood even that you know god i have to open up final draft now and start writing this script or do you just take it in your stride in terms of what you need to do like you know you rewrote hannah's kind of script and you just got on with it or do you just think i'm not really a screenwriter but i can do it and you've written your own original ones i mean do, is that a is it an obstacle or is it something you just take on because it's part of the process in terms of, I think it's just a thing you have to do. Like, it's the thing you need to do to get to where the film is. Um, that, I mean, I think, like, to say, just on promise, to say I rewrote that would be overstating it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. really a tiny polish in terms of just getting it fixed in my head. Um, I would, you know, writing is hard. Like, uh, obviously, you're by yourself in all probability. I find it much easier to talk than I do to write. Um, and also, I think if you're co-writing, then you often save, you can save yourself a draft or a few drafts because you're bouncing ideas, you're protesting ideas, and then you, you do it by yourself. There's nothing like it's like the moment you press send on a script you've written by yourself. You're like, oh no, yeah, oh, oh that, second, that the second act doesn't make any sense. And now I realise it's like when you can only find something in the house as soon as you ask somebody else where it is or where the car keys are. Yeah, yeah. But as soon as you send the script off, you're like, ah, oh, okay, yeah, no, you're right. That character's really thin. What was I? Thinking? thinking um, that said sometimes you need to do it like with this memoir I'm working on at the moment uh, it may be that at some point I try and get someone else involved to write it or do or rewrite me but in order for me to get fixed in my head how the film should be I need to go through the fairly arduous process of researching it going through the book filleting it figuring it out writing sequences I think I'm probably writing quite a few sequences or stuff in the outline which I'm going to abandon. But I'm aware that like, that's the process. That's how we're going to get to this thing. Um, other things, I've just written a, a murder thriller which I wrote, like, basically no research because it's, you know, not that I've murdered anybody, but some of it's based on my... It's one of the characters is journalist as a world that I know very well, you know. And I could write that quite quickly. At the same time, now I feel like I need to go back in and make it less superficial. Yeah. And I think that's something that if you're a good writer of prose, you have to guard against in your scripts. Because I am a good writer of prose, it sounds immodest, but like I say, it's the only thing I am good at, so I'm fine with that. But you can make something seem snappy and exciting and good on the page, but like, that's not the same as depth. You know? So, okay, you can make the description sound nice uh, and you can have some witty dialogue, but what's the motor? What's the thing that's developed? Yeah. What's the thing that's propelling the whole story? Um, what, was there any essentials about the screenwriting craft that you felt you had to learn or was that something you were always aware of even as a journalist and talking about film my biggest bugbear I don't mind telling you Nev is you know when film critics talk about scripts and their reviews I always wonder what they mean because I don't think they've read the script and I'm, I'm, it makes them sound clever as if they knew what they were talking about but I'm not sure they did now you can dispel that notion for me right now but I'm all, also I'm asking just about you personally in terms of you know the essentials of screenwriting craft did you do a weekend of McKay and think yeah I'm, I'm good to go or was it just an ongoing learning process I think when I first started toyed with the idea of being a writer a screenwriter which would have been 20 years ago probably I think I started being obsessed with like what's the format and I got some like how you know because okay so it's 12 point courier okay what should the margins be and all of that stuff it's like you can lose yourself in that and I did lose myself in that so no no what's the story just figure out what the story is and I think I read all the books um, uh, probably the book I found most useful is probably Save the Cat okay you know, great um, although I also think that that can then become its own kind of straitjacket what it was good at, what our book is good at doing is demystifying it to a degree, but I don't think screenplays are flat pack furniture. And I think there's a danger that you can get into a world where because certain because of the cliched idea of a development executive is they go, Oh, where's the midpoint, where's this, where's that? It's good to have a shared language and that's useful if you're talking to, to other people who are writers. Or even other writers, like, okay, okay, where's the second act start? Okay, that's useful, but it's don't be uh, too dogmatic about it. But sometimes you just need to explore and find, you know, I don't know, I don't know where the midpoint is. We'll find, you know, we'll find out. Um, there's, you can... 
you mistake a recipe for a meal. Like there's nothing you need. Sometimes you just need to let something cook, you know, to rather labour that. Yeah. Method. But you know, um, that's why outlines and treatments are difficult to write. Mm. You know, when I've done that in development, people go, "Oh, I need the character needs a bit more depth." I thought, like, "Well, no shit." Like it's a five-page outline. It's hard to say. It's hard to give you the rounded whole image. Um, obviously, I don't say yeah. quite like that. I'm a very good collaborator. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. No, no, it's all good. Uh, so you did some swatting up on the books. You found Blake yeah. Snyder's Save the Cat most useful, but you're not a slave to any formula or preconceived structure. The other thing I find really useful is like, like back. Um, I read, you know, he's reading stuff that from from screenwriters or listening to screenwriters, reading screenwriters' interviews. Just go, you know, I listened to Jeff Goldsmith's podcast for years, you know, when he was back at Great Screenwriter Magazine. We're still doing it now with Backstory Magazine. There's nothing like listening to a writer to understand, oh, right, okay, I'm not going mad, I'm not the only person who does that. Or you pick up tips, like, oh, okay. So you make a playlist because you find it useful to get you immediately back into the mood on a certain project. I've done that, and it works. It's yeah. astonishing. Like, you don't oh, see that in screenwriting books. You yeah. only hear it from interviews, yeah. Or like, oh, like the Coen brothers like to have a nap. It's like, good, I don't need to feel guilty about having a nap. Right. Have a nap in the middle Tip of the day. Of the day. Just have a nap. And uh, wake up with a good idea. Um, that's why people like Chris McQuarrie, who's always, you know, he's done a couple of those, and he's just like incredibly frank, and it's so valuable. Mm. Um, because that's, I mean, one thing I think has been helpful about having got to know a lot of filmmakers, spending a lot of time with filmmakers, whilst it can be intimidating and it can make you reach for a standard, measure yourself against a standard you're certainly not going to achieve on your first film out, not unless you're a genius. It also helps because you're like, oh, it's just a bloke. It's just a bloke. So you, you demystifies it to a degree. Well, it can all be learned, but it's your talent that will make it really come alive, I guess. Talent and hard work, I think. You know, in terms of like the amount of times I spent trying to get different jobs, uh, going up for writing jobs, or debating. Me and Jamie used to debate a lot about what we do next, and. I kind of look back and think, you know what, a lot of that time spent debating could have been spent writing, could have just written the thing, you know, um, and that's my feeling now, is that you can lose yourself a lot, but we chatting to some students the other day and they were talking about, oh, so you know a lot of people and that must be really helpful, and it is helpful, it is, you know, it's definitely helpful to be able to get advice from people who really know the industry, um, but although a lot of those people will be American, so it's a different thing, you know, I, um, so I'm not about to move to America and try and make it there. Um, that situation wasn't handed to you now. That was, you know, you worked, you focused on the area that you were interested in. You, yeah. kind of, you earned your way in, you made the most of your network, so there's also, to be learned there, really. I think, yeah, when that's it, it was graft. And, um, but then also now it's like, you d I don't think you, this may be easy for me to say because I've got a lot of contacts, but I don't think contacts are really, the thing is the script. The thing is, to, you know, if, you, if you're looking for an agent and you've got a great script, you need, all you need is one person. One person to read it and go, oh, this is great, and recommend it to somebody else. So, yeah, I might be able to email 25 people who would be useful. But if you've got a great script, that would take that could get you anywhere. Yeah. Um, that said, I mean, I also think there's a danger if you learn... I think the model for screenwriting in my head was probably the sort of because of when I got grew up and was interested in films, you hear about Shane Black selling a script for a million quid or Joe Esterhouse, and you're like, it's a little bit like writing as a lottery ticket. You know, you do it, and then it's going to be great. And it's like, and the spec market doesn't really exist like that anymore. You know, and also, you know, Shane Black is brilliant. So um, there's a danger, I think, of thinking that screenwriting will save you. I think that's probably the same in several jobs, but I think screenwriting slash filmmaking is very prone to that because you are probably by its nature it attracts people who are dreamers. Yeah. And then you have the idea that if I just do this project, if I just make it, then it will be fine and I'll do it. And that's a dangerous way to live. I think it's a line in Proverbs, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And I think that's very true. That's why it can become a really debilitating job. Um, that's why a lot of writers are really, really miserable. <laughs> yes, this is why filmmaking is definitely more fun. Uh, and collaboration is key. But the three short films that you've made, 
uh, like definitely in the can and they're online now or you're about to put them online uh, they'll go online on February the 5th February on, the 5th on Vimeo and then also you can access them via nevpierce.com so nevpierce.com or your Vimeo channel or is there a specific channel or address for that Vimeo you know you would think that I would have that information to hand, it's, but I don't. Do a search for Vimeo Nev Pierce or just yeah. nevpierce.com. Promise the fourth short doesn't go online until later in That'll 2018, later. Yeah, yeah. and that's cool. But now you're focusing on some feature films in development. Is there anything you can tell us about them? Not really. Not <laughs> Hopefully. Really. Exciting, I mean, cool projects on the go. Yeah, there's a thriller that me and Jamie wrote, which Finch is exact producing, which is, uh, at the moment, it's basically on a schedule which I'll direct. But it's very cast dependent, so we're, we're talking to various people about the cast on that. Uh, and that's one of those moments where you're like, am I just nuts? Um, but it's a good script. You right. know, um, I think we'll make a cracking film, so we'll just keep on pressing on with that. In the meantime, I've written a much smaller British thriller, um, which I need to rewrite. Okay. I've got some notes on it, which is, you know. So, drama, stroke, thriller are more kind of your areas I'm, I'm thinking yeah well, I mean that seems to be where I naturally gravitate to yeah. every once in a while I think oh, I should try and write something nice I'd like to write something that my kids can watch and then every time I start writing somebody gets killed or something terrible happens you're like oh I really gonna, kids would still watch them. yeah I really didn't want this to happen but um, the um, so we'll see I don't you know I'd like to be able to think I can make all sorts of different things but uh, certainly drama thriller seems to be the direction I'm, I'm pulling towards at the moment okay cool well, most of the podcast listeners uh, for us are aspiring screenwriters. So, what kind of golden tip can we leave them on? Uh, gold, golden advice from Nev Pierce. <laughs> um, yeah, from unproduced screenwriter Nev Pierce. Um, don't expect the work to save you. Make sure you actually do do the work rather than just talking about it. That's really my lesson to myself. That's a good tip. Yeah. Um, put the hours in. But then don't beat yourself up if it takes a while. Like, I've got a project at the moment that I'm working on for two hours a day because it's about the limit that I can cope with that particular thing when I go off and do other things. I'm just trying to do that first thing in the morning instead of procrastinating for the whole day, hating myself. Enjoy your life. You know, if you're fortunate enough to have a way to make a living as a screenwriter or have that as a big part of your life, see, my life as a screenwriter, as a journalist, um, then take advantage of that and enjoy it rather than making it like rather than being tortured about it rather than thinking that you have to suffer um, it's like there's, there's plenty of ways you can suffer and earn a lot more money go do that if you want to suffer well, yeah. I'm liking it work hard but have a life yeah yeah. okay we'll finish there Nev Pierce thanks so much my pleasure and uh, yeah this has been Danny Stack without Tim Clegg UK Scriptwriters Podcast you can always email us ukscriptwriters at hotmail.com and now we've got a dedicated site ukscriptwriters.com where you can see all our blogs all our podcasts and now our new videos we've started screenwriting videos because we're just a couple of chumps I need to buy your book as well. and you need to buy everybody needs to buy a book yeah. we'll do a separate podcast on that probably anyway thanks for listening see you next month